chapter 1 once again. John chapter 1. This morning we want to continue uh, in our study of the book of John. John chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verses 29 through 34. Now today I believe there are many misconceptions about man's condition and his relationship to God. There was an interview on the radio talk show uh, with a screenwriter who had a new movie coming out. And the one being interviewed said he had been brought up in a religious home and he viewed himself as a sinner. The radio host was surprised at this, as if viewing oneself as a sinner were a quaint hang-up from a bygone era, which this young man needed to put behind him. I read about the Pope's first Easter message. It was basically a message calling for peace all around the world. While he did mention Jesus' resurrection, after all it was Easter, in the entire message, which millions around the world would either hear or read, the Pope never presented the gospel that Christ died for sinners so that whoever repents of sin and trusts in him will have eternal life. He did say that God wants the good news to enter every heart. But then he told his hearers, Jesus is risen. There is hope for you. You are no longer in the power of sin, of evil. Love has triumphed. Mercy has been victorious. And he made it sound as if Jesus' resurrection means that everyone has already been freed from the power of sin and can love others. Now, these reports show that we live in a world where the notion that we are sinners needing a Savior from God's judgment is really out of sync. The same idea came through a tribute with one theological writer who wrote about his late mother. He said, Mom first introduced me to a non-retributive loving Lord who did not come to die for us to satisfy an angry God, but came as a friend who ended all cycles of retribution and violence. Really? You know, mothers are pretty smart for the most part, but they may be wrong in their theology at times. But the statement does fit the spirit of our age. Now, I share those stories to illustrate that we live in a time when few understand biblical gospel or the need for that gospel. If we aren't sinners, then we don't need a Savior. If God isn't absolutely holy and just, then we don't need a Savior who died to satisfy God's wrath against our sin. If He is non-retributive and loving, then we don't need to fear His judgment. All we need is a friend, a friend who will urge us all the more to be loving to each other. Now, John's message was not quite like that, was it? John the Baptist didn't preach that kind of message. His message was, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as we mentioned last time, his opening line to the religious leaders was, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
And his description of Jesus as reported in John's gospel in verse 29 was, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. In other words, in contrast to the stories I just mentioned, John preached that we are all sinners. And we do need a Savior to atone for our sins so that we do not face the wrath of God. See, John was pointing people to Jesus as that Savior, and so should we. John's witness to Jesus tells us that to be a faithful witness, we need to tell people clearly who Jesus is. And from our text description of John the Baptist's witness to Jesus, we can learn five things about who Jesus is that will help us point others to him. I want you to notice, first of all, Jesus, the sacrificial lamb. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb that every person needs to atone for his sins. Verse 29, chapter 1. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. That verse is so familiar that it doesn't even shock us. But I think it should. It was an amazing foundational thing for John to say about a young Galilean carpenter to a bunch of Jewish people who for centuries had offered their sacrificial lambs at the temple. He's telling them, this man is the one whom God has sent to be what all those thousands and thousands of lambs over hundreds of years have symbolized. And he's not only the lamb that God sent for Israel, but also for the whole world. But although the title, the Lamb of God, is familiar to us, it's used only here and in in verse 36 as well to describe Jesus. And so sometimes scholars who like to debate, they debate exactly which lamb John was referring to. In Revelation, John often refers to Jesus as the lamb, but there are times when he uses somewhat of a different word, Uh, Some think that in our text he was referring to the Passover lamb whose blood spared the Israelites from the loss of their firstborn. And John connects Jesus with the Passover lamb in chapter 19. Or it could refer to lambs that were offered as the morning and evening sacrifices at the temple. And others would say, well, it refers to the Lamb of Isaiah 53 and verse 7, who died to bear the sin of many. Or it could refer to the Lamb that God provided as a substitute so Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Let me say that all the ancient sacrifices foreshadowed what was perfectly fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ. It meant that Christ was the great sacrifice for sin who was come to make atonement for transgression by his own death upon the cross. It described our Lord's official character as the great propitiation for sin. Now let's consider verse 29, phrase by phrase. We've already considered lamb. The lamb of God means that Jesus is the supreme lamb, the only lamb that God has provided to take away our sins. There is no other. 
When we say the Lamb of God, of God means that God sent Jesus to bear our sins. He's God's gift to us, as we will later read in John 3 and verse 16. The words taketh away signifies an atonement or that by substitution he was made sin for us. He died so that sinners who trust in him will not incur God's judgment. Jesus' sacrifice of himself put an end once and for all to all Jewish sacrifices. The words taketh away are also in the present tense. They signify the ongoing sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice and the fact that it's available at all times for every sinner who will put their trust in him. And then there's the word sin. The word sin is singular and heaps together all the trillions of sins in human history into one big gigantic pile, if you please. It also means that Jesus not only took away the guilt of our many individual sins, but also the guilt of the inborn sin that was inherited from Adam. And then of the world does not mean that Christ paid the penalty for every sinner who has ever lived because then all would already be saved. It refers to people in general, both Jews and Gentiles, not people without exception. But as John puts it, thou hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation of the world points to the adequacy of Christ's atonement for any person no matter how terrible that person's sins may be. Christ invites all to come to the feast that he has prepared. You say, preacher, you forgot one word. No, it's the word behold. It's John's proclamation. Behold. It's not a word we often use. You don't uh, have your children come in the house and say, Behold, mother! <laughs> they might bring you uh, an assignment from school and they say, Hey, look, mom! They don't use the word behold. But it's a command to look. To look to Jesus. John doesn't say, Hey, look at me. I'm a great prophet. He doesn't say, look at your good works, they will save you. He doesn't say, well, look at your religious rituals, they will put you in good stead on judgment day. And he doesn't say, look at your religious heritage or your church attendance. He says, look, behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus saves sinners who look in faith to him. It reminds me of the story of Charles Spurgeon's conversion. And so I think appropriate even for a day like today, even though you came and you weren't held up by a snowstorm, but he was 15 years old. And both his father and grandfather had been pastors. Young Spurgeon had read many Uh, solid Puritan books that presented the gospel, but it didn't get through to him. He uh, agonized over his sin so much that if a 15-year-old boy did this today, we'd say, well, he's mentally imbalanced. But then one snowy day, Spurgeon could not get to his 
regular church, and so he turned down a side street and came to a small primitive Methodist chapel. And there are about 12 to 15 people there that day. Minister couldn't make it. There was so much snow. So a man from the church went into the pulpit and he began to preach on Isaiah 45 and verse 22, which reads, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And he began, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It just says, look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child could look. And then he pointed out that the text says, Look unto me, not to yourself. He went on about ten minutes or so telling everyone who Christ was and that they were to look to him. And it seemed to be at the end of his tether when he looked directly into young Spurgeon's eyes and he said, Young man, you look miserable. And you'll always be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey him now, this moment, you will be saved. And then he shouted, young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. You have nothing but to do but to look and live. Spurgeon said he had been waiting to do 50 things, but the word look cleared it all away for him. He looked to Christ, and the boy who would have gone on to become one of the greatest preachers of the 19th century was saved that day. And you can be saved too. If you look by faith to Jesus, the Lamb of God who provided to take away your sins. Now we've spent some time here in verse 29, but it's a very pivotal, pivotal verse here. It's a very crucial verse for everyone, for us to understand. And so let's move on. Secondly, Jesus, greater than the greatest of men. Now, though he was a man, Jesus is greater than the greatest of men because he's eternal God. Look at verse 30. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me, and I knew him not but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Now, we've already considered the first part of this verse when we studied it back in verse 15. And as I pointed out then, the phrase, for he was before me, means because he was first with respect to me. We don't know whether John the Baptist was even aware that Jesus was the eternal Son of God in human flesh, but he may have spoken better than he knew. The Apostle John came to know that Jesus is the eternal God because we read in John 8 and verse 58 that Jesus told the skeptical Jews before Abraham was, I am. That clearly refers to his eternality as Jehovah. And so verse 30 reinforces both Jesus' humanity, he was born after John, and his deity, he existed before John. And so when John says, and I knew him not, he means, I did not recognize him as the Messiah and the Lamb of God who is to be manifested to Israel until I came baptizing in water. 
And God had revealed to John that one on whom he saw the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven would be the Messiah. It's interesting that John does not report the actual baptism of Jesus, but rather focuses on the purpose of John's baptism, which was to reveal Jesus to Israel as her Messiah. And our purpose, when we have opportunities to talk to others about Jesus, should be to let them know who Uh, that he is eternal God in the human flesh, and that the promised Messiah of Israel came as the Lamb of God to bear our sins. Jesus, greater than the greatest of men. John points that out. And we are to point that out as we witness to others. But then notice thirdly, Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit. As a man, Jesus was filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Look again at verse 32. And John bear record saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon him. Now, the other gospels report that this happened when John baptized Jesus. And some would argue that because it said the spirit descended as or like a dove, that it was an actual dove that came down on Jesus. But if that is so, it's hard to know what John and Jesus saw since the Holy Spirit is really invisible. John 3, or Luke 3.22 says, And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. So there must have been some kind of visible manifestation of the Spirit that looked like a dove to those who saw it. And the meaning of why Holy Spirit appeared as a dove is, may not be clear, but our traditional view links the dove with Genesis 1 and verse 2, when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters in creation. And the dove may point to the gentleness and the purity of the Spirit, but again, we cannot be sure about that. But the Old Testament was clear that the Messiah would be anointed by the Spirit. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. Isaiah 42 verse 1 prophesies, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I will put my spirit upon him. He will uh, shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Or even as we read earlier, our scripture reading from Isaiah 61, which Jesus quoted himself, verses 1 and 2. He quoted it in Luke 4, 18 and 19, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus was not deprived of the Holy Spirit before his baptism, but the revelation of the Spirit coming on Jesus and the voice from heaven affirming that Jesus was God's beloved Son in whom he was well pleased, was a revelation of the Trinity at the outset of Jesus' ministry. And so John's statement that the Spirit remaineth upon him shows us this was not a temporary arrangement, but that Jesus' entire ministry would be uh, characterized by the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And by living as a man in dependence on the fullness of the Spirit, Jesus showed us how we are to live. He is uniquely God's anointed one. He is the Messiah. He's the Christ. 
But then we find here it says Jesus or baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Verse 33, And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaineth on him, the same is he that baptizes with the Holy Ghost. John's baptizing in water, which was symbolic, is contrasted with Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit, which is a prophecy of an event yet to come. Jesus promised the disciples that it was to their advantage that he go away so that he could send the Holy Spirit to be with them and to dwell in them. We find that in John chapter 14. And the promise was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and empowered them to bear witness to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. This fulfilled several Old Testament prophecies that God would pour out His Spirit upon the people in the last days. Since Jesus promised to send the Spirit from the Father, it confirms Jesus' deity as eternal Son of God. While all three persons of the Trinity are equal, there is a hierarchy in which the Son submits to the Father and the Spirit to the Son to carry out the divine plan for the ages. Now, I believe at this point, we should take some time, perhaps, to examine just what is the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I think there's confusion about this. Two particular ideas are that baptism of the Holy Ghost is something you seek after you get saved. It follows salvation. This is actually the charismatic view. It's called the second blessing. And then that the baptism of the Holy Ghost happens at the moment of salvation. But I think a careful study of Scripture doesn't really allow for either one of these ideas. Let me just... Explain this. There could be a long time spent on this, but we won't try to spend too much time, but enough to at least get the idea of what's taking place here. The baptism with the Holy Ghost was prophesied by John the Baptist as a future event. You go back to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, and you notice there that it was associated with fire. He that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now that prophecy appears also in a parallel passage describing John's ministry in Mark chapter 1 and verse 8. We read, I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Luke 3 and verse 16 tells us, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now John 1 and verse 33 identifies Christ as the one who would have authority to baptize with the Holy Ghost. Again, it says here, In our text, he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaineth on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. Now there are no further references in the gospel to the baptism of the Holy Ghost. But the next reference is found in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. And it leaves us with no doubt as to when this promised event would take place. 
Christ, just before his ascension, told his apostles, For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. What noteworthy event took place a few days after the ascension? Ten days to be exact. It was called the Pentecost. Now, we have a pinpointed time when the promised baptism with the Holy Ghost would take place. And we can examine the nature of this public event. As John the Baptist had foretold, it was associated with fire. Not literal fire, but visible cloven tongues as fire. It says in Acts 2 and verse 3. There was a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind. Acts 2 and verse 2. And then the disciples, they spoke in tongues. In Acts 2 and verse 4. These were not unknown heavenly languages, incomprehensible to men. Rather, they were actual foreign languages, clearly understood by those who were in the audience. You read about it in Acts chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Now, should this great event at Pentecost be duplicated in churches today? Well, there's no record in the Bible or in church history of a reenactment of the Pentecost, nor any command from God that we should reenact this event. Any church claiming to reenact Pentecost should check to see if all the signs are duplicated. Remember what the signs are? The sound of a mighty rushing wind, the visible cloven tongues of fire, the proclamation of the gospel in actual foreign languages that not understood by those who spoke. Not only has Pentecost never been reenacted, but it was a one-time historical event which by its very nature requires no reenactment. Now we do not expect to see the parting of the waters of the Red Sea reenacted by the church. Let's go out and part the waters of Yellow River, you know. That wouldn't be hard to do, right? Now we don't reenact that thing. We're never told to do that. It was a one-time event. It served its purpose by getting Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. We need to learn the lessons of this miraculous intervention by God in human history and by those lessons, but we do not need to replicate the event itself. Now, what great historical purpose was accomplished by the baptism of the Holy Ghost at Pentecost? Well, the disciples at that time received power for their Christian ministry. Acts 1 and verse 8. And ye shall receive power. But the Holy Spirit still empowers us for witnessing today without any visible, miraculous manifestations. There was more to the baptism with the Holy Ghost than this. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit appeared visibly to man in order to place his public stamp of approval on the new institution which God had ordained, through which all of his work on this earth was done, and that is the local church. So, after reviewing the nature and the historical purpose of baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we move on to the next and the last scriptural reference to the baptism with the Holy Ghost, and that's found in Acts chapter 11 and verse 16. 
And the Apostle Peter there defending his decision to receive Gentile converts at Caesarea as brethren to baptize them said, Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit graciously fell upon these Gentile converts, the first in history, in order to publicly demonstrate God's acceptance of the Gentiles into the family of God, and so that the Hebrew Christians would also accept them. And this event, like Pentecost, was a one-time historical event, which need not and cannot be duplicated in churches today. Well, time does not allow us to examine this in more detail this morning, but just let me uh, mention two other things. We are never told to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit for our second blessing. Never told that. But yet some people have used eisegesis, and they've put it in the Bible, right? That's not what you get when you exegete the Scriptures. Secondly, there is there is more... One more alleged reference, and I say alleged reference, and that's in 1 Corinthians 12.13. There are some who interpret 1 Corinthians 12.13, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. They say, well, this is a reference to the baptism with the Holy Spirit. But you know what? Such an interpretation introduces a tremendous confusion into an otherwise clear understanding of this subject. The alleged Holy Spirit baptism of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, as conceived by those who hold this view, is private. It's individual. There's no fire. There's no outward manifestation. And it occurs at the moment of salvation. How can this concept possibly be reconciled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2? It was public. It was corporate. It had outward manifestations and fire falling upon anyone or all those who were already believers. It did not happen at the moment of their salvation. It happened to people who were already believers. Now, this difficulty is totally eliminated when we realize that the baptism that's mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 is water baptism and nothing else. And again, much more could be said concerning this passage and much has been written, and I have studied that even in a greater detail, but I don't want to get into all that this morning and get sidetracked from the text. And I just wanted to note this as one more thing. And the one last thing we want to note here in our text is that Jesus, the Son of God, verse 34, and I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. This is the first of many references in John that state explicitly that Jesus was the Son of God. And while believers are children of God through the new birth, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He stands in a unique relationship with the Father. The Jews recognized that when Jesus called God his own Father, he was making himself equal to God. And to be a faithful witness, you and I need to show people that Jesus is the eternal Son of God in human flesh the Lamb of God who atoned for the sins of all who would believe in Him. And so knowing who Jesus is can keep us strong when difficult circumstances may cause us to doubt. Later, when John the Baptist was in prison, he began to doubt whether Jesus was the Messiah. 
Jesus didn't seem to be the kind of Messiah that John had envisioned. He probably thought, you know, if he's the Messiah, then why doesn't he get me out of prison? You know, people think that way today. You know, if God is a loving God, why does he let all these things happen to me? Why doesn't he judge the wicked for their sins? John could have thought, why doesn't he judge wicked Herod for his sins? Well, Jesus answered these doubts by referring to how he fulfilled the prophecies of Isaiah 35. He said in Matthew eleven four through 6, Jesus answered and said unto him, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. We need to know for ourselves. And then we need to proclaim to our world the good news that, of who Jesus is and what he came to do. We are sinners. And he is God's only Savior from sin. We dare not compromise these truths to fit with our adulterous and sinful generation. And if you're here this morning without a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I invite you to believe on him today. You must recognize that you are a sinner and without hope apart from Christ, contrary to what the thinking of our day is. Contrary to what some liberal media person would try to convey in their stories. Contrary to what even religious people, very religious people will tell you. Jesus came to this earth as the Son of God to be born, to live, to die, paying your sin penalty. And then he arose from the dead to conquer death and give us the promise of eternal life. If you're without Christ today, won't you trust him today? Perhaps you're here and there has been a point in time when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. But you're not living for him. Perhaps you haven't been obedient to him in believer's baptism. Perhaps you have not identified with this Bible-believing church through membership. I had one of our little girls come to me recently and express her desire to be baptized. And so we're planning for a baptismal service soon. Perhaps there are others who need to follow the Lord's example and be baptized, giving testimony of what the Lord has done in your life. And so in a few moments, we're going to sing a closing song. And if there's a need in your life, we invite you to come and let us know of your need this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you.